turn to Daniel chapter 6. We are back to it in our study of Daniel this week, working our way through the famous chapter 6, known mostly for Daniel in the lion's den. But um, the whole chapter is very good, a lot for us to learn. We're going to read all of it, verses 1 through 28. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18, and then uh, if someone else will read 19 to 24, and someone else 25 to 28. Who wants to read 19 through 24? Anyone? All right, now a woman that wants to lead, read uh, 25 through 28. Anne. Okay, great. All right, follow as I read, starting in verse 1. It pleased Darius to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one, to whom these satraps should give account, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him, and the king planned to set set him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault because he was faithful. And no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, We shall not find any ground for complaint against this Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and plea before his God. Then they came near and said before the king concerning the injunction, O king, did you not sign an injunction that anyone who makes petition to any God or man within 30 days except to you, O king, shall be cast into the den of lions? The king answered and said, The thing stands fast according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. Then they answered and said before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or the injunction you have signed, but makes his petition three times a day. Then the king, when he heard these words, was much distressed and set his mind to deliver Daniel, and he labored till the sun went down to rescue him. Then these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Know, O king, that it is a law of the Medes and the Persians that no injunction or ordinance that the king establishes can be changed. Then the king commanded, and Daniel was brought and cast into the den of lions. The king declared to Daniel, May your God, whom you serve continually, deliver you. 
And a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords, that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. Then the king went to his palace and spent the night fasting. No diversions were brought to him, and sleep fled from him. Then the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. When he had come near the, near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel, servant of the living God, may your God whom you constantly serve been able to deliver you from the lions? Then Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God has sent an angel and shut the, ma- the lions' mouths, and they have not harmed me. Inasmuch as I was found innocent before him and also toward you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury whatever was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children, and their wives into the lion's den. And they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues, he works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, and he who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Amen. Thank you. All right, last week we worked through verses 1 through 10. Uh, Anybody want to help us remember what we talked about? Talked about being awesome. Uh, Daniel, the excellent. Daniel was excellent in the work that God had assigned to him. He was above reproach. He was uh, an elder in that sense. You couldn't get him on anything. And we see that the foundation and fountain of his excellence was that excellent spirit that was in him, the Holy Spirit, uh, as we are told in verse 3. We talked about persecution. Daniel was persecuted uh, for his faithfulness to God, also for his excellence in his work. And we are promised as well that all who desire to live a godly life will likewise be persecuted. We talked about Daniel the pilgrim, uh, that Daniel knew Babylon was not his home. In verse 10, we're told that three times a day he prayed toward Jerusalem. That's showing us that he was longing for his true home, which was in Jerusalem, and he nurtured that longing through daily spiritual discipline. Um, Yet, we are told, though he longed to be somewhere else, he was faithful where God had put him. He was faithful in Babylon. And so should we be uh, living in light of our true home with Christ in glory, nurturing that longing through daily spiritual discipline, but also being faithful where God has us. All right, a lot of good stuff in those first few verses. I'm sure we haven't covered all of it, but we're going to move beyond that and try to think about the rest of the passage today. So the first thing I want us to think about is the futility or ineffectiveness of the worldly government powers. Um, Now, that's not to say that all government powers are ineffective. Of course not. We must remember that all governing powers are put into power by God. 
that they serve God's purposes. But we all know that many tend to ascribe God-like status to government powers. And certainly we see that was the case in Daniel's day, as is evidenced by the law that was set up. You know, nobody can make petition to any God or man except the king. And while our laws may not be like that yet, uh, many in our own day want to ascribe God-like status to the state. But the state makes a bad God, and that is one of the important points in our passage. If you look at verse 14, King Darius set his mind to deliver Daniel, but he couldn't do it. God delivered Daniel. So even when the king knew it was the right thing, this is the most powerful king in all of the earth at that time. He has just conquered the mighty Babylon. He's the king of the Persian kingdom. He is the most powerful man in all the earth. He knew what was right. He knew that the law was not right when he saw it in light of how it was uh, affecting Daniel, who he loved. But he was powerless to do what needed to be done. But God, our God, the one true God of all power, of all authority in heaven and on earth, he is able. It's one of the great contrasts that we see. Uh, in our text, and it's one of the important paradigms that we have to keep in mind throughout whatever political happenings uh, take place in our lifetime. You know, many in our day are clamoring for socialism, and obviously they haven't paid attention to its bitter fruits in history, but whether it's liberals or conservatives, both are guilty of ascribing salvific value to the state. Just pay attention to the slogans and uh, the rallying cries at every election time. And it, you can see that there is a salvific significance that, that people want to ascribe to our leader. But God delights to prove any political leader, even the most powerful political leaders, as ineffective and impotent to provide salvation. Um, Psalm 146.3, do not put your hope in princes, in mortal man, in whom there is no salvation. Next, I want us to see God's sovereign power and protection in shutting the lion's mouths. You may not know this, but some people have a real big problem with this, uh, and not just like atheists, but many professing Christians who uh, have liberal theology. There's a whole liberal theological movement that was especially prominent through the early 1900s and uh, mid-1900s, and they're still around today, although dying, which is what happens when you disconnect from the vine. But uh, they think it's a fanciful myth because they just can't imagine how this could happen. (laughs) I mean, that's basically what it boils down to. So they try to say Daniel 6 can't be history, it must be fantasy. It's the same thing they say with uh, Noah and the flood or Jonah and the fish. But all they're doing is proving that they simply do not know God. Because really, what is it for God to do this? He made the lions. He knows their names. He knows and has numbered the hairs in their manes. He gives them the breath in their lungs. He gives them every ounce of prey throughout their lives. Of course he can shut their mouths to protect his son. And we may not think that God's still doing things like this, 
but he is, um, with actual lions and with figurative lions. So uh, maybe I've told this story in here before. If not, it's, I'll, I can't ever read this text without thinking of it now because it's the way that he described God closed the lion's mouths. My friend Steve, who went to prison um, and spent a good many years in prison, he was there for six or seven years, and uh, he was converted to Christ the night that he was arrested. He was terrified, um, crying out to God in his jail cell, and uh, God brought him to new life, assured him that he was with him, that he was going to care for him, and he did. So not long after that, he was taken from the penal farm, I believe it was, to the worst state penitentiary in Tennessee, somewhere over toward Jackson somewhere, and uh, he said it was really bad. And the nature of his offense uh, was such that it was going to be really bad for him. So he gets there. He's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. Uh, He's all alone. He's half wishing they'd just put him in solitary for the rest of his time. So, you know, I might lose my mind, but I'll be protected from everybody else. And he's just, he's honestly like one of us. And uh, it's a rough and tumble crowd, to say the least. He's terrified. So he goes one day to shoot basketball. He's afraid to do anything, but he's like, he played basketball, so he goes to shoot basketball. And uh, he is a white guy, and most of the guys that are there, all of the other guys that are there are African-American. In that uh, prison, he said it's like in the movies, it was all, you know, multiple uh, stories of cells all around, and they kind of have the ledges where people just hang over the ledges, and they would have, like, fights to the death and the guards help us to stop it. He says it's just absolutely, um, completely out of control, and it's all gang-related. So you need to get in a gang. But he's like, I'm not going to get in a gang. I'm a Christian. You know, at the same time, it'd be really helpful if I could get in a gang. So um, he goes to play basketball. He's they, And then these uh, black guys ask him, hey, uh, come join us tonight to play. He's afraid to say yes. He's afraid to say no. So he goes. And they call him old school. He's on the bench. Of course, you know, he's like, you're not going to actually play, but you can, you know, be here. And uh, he's on the bench. And at some point, they call him into the game. Old school. Get in there. And they pass him the ball. Shoot it. He shoots a three. And he makes it. And they're like, okay. Old school's got game. You know, so they pass him the ball again. He shoots a three. He makes it. He said, I made nine threes in a row without missing. He's like, I've never shot the ball like that in my life. God, the Holy Spirit, was shooting the ball through me. But you know what happened? He became a living legend, and he didn't have to join a gang, but every person in the African-American gang had his back the whole time that he was there. He said, I have seen God close the lion's mouths. It's pretty amazing. This is a truth that many Christians all around the world still cherish today because they have to. And frankly, it's a truth that the church in our country is going to need to cherish again. God still shuts the lion's mouths. Next, I want us to see God's justice, uh, which we see in two ways in the text. Number one, God's justice in freeing the innocent. Verse 22, my God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouths and they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before him. 
Now, that word blameless in the ESV is translated as innocent in nearly every other translation. And that's really the idea, uh, is that Daniel was innocent before God in this matter. Whatever is happening here, he's innocent before God. He's done nothing wrong. And he stayed faithful to God when the pressure was on. But not only innocent before God, also before the king. If you look at the last part of verse 22, it says, Also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Which is really interesting because he did break the law of the Medes and the Persians that the king had just signed into effect. But we are told he was innocent before God, and likewise, he did nothing wrong to the king. So there's a couple things to learn from this. First, uh, something we always talk about in this type of situation, but the allegiance of God's people is to a law that is higher than the law of the land, right? I mean, we are to obey the laws of the land so long as they do not require us to disobey the commands of God. But the second thing we see is that this law was foolish. For Daniel to keep the law would have required him to disobey God. So there are times when it is right and good for God's people to disobey the laws of the land. Uh, What are a couple examples of this? I mean, obviously, if demands are ever made that we worship another god or a man, we know that would be an example, you know, like this. But what, what would be some other ones? Anybody have any thoughts? Yeah, if you, uh, you were breaking the law if you weren't outing Jews, right? I mean, you, if you were hiding them, you were complicit in breaking the law and uh, would be put along with them in a concentration camp. At that point, the heroes were like Corrie ten Boom and her father, her family that were hiding them still and built secret rooms in their house to disobey the law of the land because it was foolish. It was obviously unjust. What else? Yeah. No. I mean, there would have been, there were uh, courageous Christians who would have disregarded whatever laws were put into effect um, to, you know, not segregate, but to uh, love their neighbor no matter what color. Far too few, probably, but uh, no doubt there were some. A lot of Muslim countries, it's illegal to preach the gospel or to become a Christian? An obvious uh, need to break the law. One thing that popped into my head, too, is um, just with the legal legalization of gay marriage, Yeah. Um, my uncle runs um, a, what do you call it? I mean, he, he's... Um, Agape, which is, mm-hmm. you know, foster parents. And he was like, you know, we don't know how this is going to affect, sure. you know, foster families and adoption. So he's like, you know, it's still, we're still waiting to see how, yeah. you know, that law is going to affect his organization. So the laws being that there's no discrimination right. and that sort of thing. Right. So and it would be against Christian know, conscience and yeah. obedience to God. Like, would they be forced, you know, to allow yeah. 
And that plays out in all, I mean, there may come a day where it is illegal for a minister to deny a gay marriage. Yeah. Um, they're already doing it to the cake bakers, you know. You're, we're going to put you out of business if you don't bake the cake. So what's the difference? It will put you, you know, down if you won't preside. Um, but it's not that far, certainly in some states. Also, you know, if abortion is mandatory, which we think, how could that ever happen? Well, uh, we've, we're about halfway there. And, you know, ask the Chinese how that could ever happen. But uh, mandatory there for a long time. So uh, obviously there are ways and times and needs when it is right to disobey, when you're innocent before God and you've done nothing wrong to the state because they're acting foolishly, um, it's, a, it's a good thing. So we really, I mean, might God give us the courage, uh, the wisdom and discernment to know when, you know, when is, when is it permissible to uh, love our neighbor even in our differences and when is it time to stand firm and, and disobey? Uh, so we see God's justice in freeing the innocent, but we also see God's justice in the destruction of the wicked. Because not only was Daniel free, but we're told in verse 24 that those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. So here we are reminded that the wicked will be destroyed in God's time according to God's justice, whether in the short term or in the end. So I think one of the most challenging questions for Christians, um, or even those who are thinking through the faith and perhaps wanting to become Christians, is why do the wicked prosper? You know? just a, We look around and we see the wicked prospering, and why? If God is just, how is, how is this right? We can't lose heart. We do remember and we have to stick in the ground and hold dear to the fact that our God is a just God and he will judge justly and he will put all things right in the end. Until then, we trust him and we serve him. He knows his times. He knows why he permits there to be such injustice as he does. But um, we trust that all things will be right in the end. However, This is not only a sobering reality for those wicked men like Daniel. I mean, this is a sobering reality for all people, for us included, because each and every one of us is wicked in our sin, just like they are, opposing God, uh, opposing God's people in our sin. We're taught in the scriptures that we're enemies of God, and if you're not in Christ, you still are. So the choice for everyone everywhere is either Christ or chaos, ultimately, In the end, the only safety from God's destruction is in Christ. And apart from Christ, our lot would be the same as the men in Daniel 6. But in Christ, the safety is total. And did you notice in verse 24 that it wasn't just the men uh, who accused Daniel that were thrown into the den, but it was them, their wives, and their children, which is just a startling Uh, statement. But here we see the marital and generational devastation and destruction of sin. We're reminded that sin is not neutral. You know, I think we know this for ourselves, even when we're not paying attention to that knowledge, even when we're kind of suppressing it and we're persisting in our sin. Um, But I, I think we 
we may not really tend to understand that sin is not neutral for those connected to us either. So, you know, whether it's thinking you can just keep a porn habit to yourself, you can't. Even if you don't get caught, God will visit your sin on those that are connected to you. Whether sins of lust or greed or anger or whatever it is, uh, sin is connective and sin is generationally devastating. This is one of the things in any um, counseling situation or just, it doesn't have to be me, but you. You have friends that come to you and ask and they're in hard times and they're wanting to know what to do and they just want out. And one of the things that we have to bring before people is the long view. In, in hard spots, you're only thinking short term. You want immediate relief. But you have to be thinking about downstream consequences of sin. And it's one of the things that we can do to be helpful to people is, hey, I hear what you're saying. It sounds really bad. You're thinking about it over the short term. Let me just paint a picture for you over the long haul. Um, but, you know, the other side of the coin is true of this as well. Repentance is not neutral either. So in the same way that if we persist in our sin, it will be devastating to those that we're connected to. If you persist in your repentance, it will be a much greater blessing than we can even imagine for those that we are connected to. If we continue in turning away from our sin and trusting God and following God according to his ways, it doesn't feel that significant in the moment, just like sin doesn't feel that significant in the moment, but leaves its own blaze of devastation. Well, Faithfulness and repentance and faith does the same. The inverse. It it leaves um, a legacy of faithfulness. Exodus 20, verses 5 and 6. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, which would just be those who don't listen to me, don't follow me, don't repent, don't believe. But showing steadfast love to thousands of generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. So it works the other way too. Sin is not neutral, but neither is repentance. And let that be heartening in your struggle. Now, uh, as we move toward home, in order to really understand this passage, we need to see Jesus in the lion's den. And I'm not talking about the angel. Someone asked me this the other day about when they're in the fiery furnace, and I think it's the same thing. The angel shows up. Uh, I'm not sure there's any reason to think that's anything other than an angel. But I'm talking about Daniel. Um, Not that Daniel is Jesus, but he is what we call a type of Christ. This event in history provides a significant foreshadowing to an even greater event. That's what types do. They, uh, They point us to even greater realities coming in the future. So does anybody want to take a stab at what event we're being pointed to here? I mean, it's it's the cross. I mean, he was left for dead. Yeah. And the Lord saved Daniel in foreshadowing of uh, of Christ rising from from. Well, I would, so resurrection, I mean, death and resurrection. And I, that's where uh, I want us to see. Look at verse 17. A stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den, 
Then it was sealed to assure that no one would let him out. Sound familiar? Turn to Matthew 27. Matthew 27, not too far to the right, uh, verses 59 to 66. Matthew 27, 59 and following. And Joseph of Arimathea took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut in the rock. And he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore... Order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting the guard. So one of the, I would say, the most important event that we're being pointed to here is the resurrection. As uh, with uh, Jesus, as it was with Daniel, a stone was brought, a stone was sealed. Daniel came out alive against all odds. And of course, so did Jesus. Life from the den, life from the tomb. Of course, there are important differences. Number one, uh, Daniel entered the den when he was alive. Jesus entered the tomb when he was dead. Number two, Daniel entered the den in innocence Uh, And so did Jesus, but Jesus went into the tomb on behalf of the guilty. Number three, God spared Daniel from death against all odds, but Jesus was not spared. Jesus suffered a death that could not be avoided. It was either him or us. But in his death, sin's payment was complete. And in his resurrection, death was defeated. And then number four, when God delivered Daniel, um, it seems like maybe he brought salvation to the leader of a nation. But when God raised Jesus, he sent salvation to all nations. So there is obviously this uh, typology, this foreshadowing that we see of the resurrection of Christ. And finally, I want us to see uh, Darius and his subservient kingdom, which we see in verses 25 to 28. So remember that one of the main points of the book of Daniel that is continuing to be elaborated is uh, God's kingdom is the kingdom of all kingdoms. That's what was in that dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and we're just seeing it fleshed out in various ways. So Uh, Darius rose to prominence for a time as the leader of the Persian kingdom, but the Persian kingdom would soon fade away. And, uh, but before it did, God gave him this insight that the Persian kingdom was, though it was the great world kingdom at that time, it was not the ultimate kingdom. King Darius made a decree in all his royal dominion as the leader of the greatest world power at the time. All people were to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. He says, For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. 
So Darius was brought to know his place. Even though his was a great kingdom of the earth, the great kingdom of the earth at the time, his was still a subservient kingdom and he knew it. Only God's kingdom will endure to the end and never be destroyed. Only God rescues and delivers as he wills. Darius knew he couldn't deliver. He wanted to deliver, but he was powerless to do it. And indeed, just as surely as Daniel walked out of the den, a few hundred years later, Jesus walked out of the tomb. And when he did, the Father gave him all authority in heaven and on earth. He is the king of kings. He is the king of God's kingdom forever. Darius was bowing before God in Daniel chapter 6, but the truth is that every knee will bow to Christ in the end. Even every nation will bow to Christ in the end. Whether willingly or unwillingly, all will know that He is the living God, enduring forever. He delivers and rescues His people. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. It is alive and um, all is well. Lord, thank you that you continue to open it to us. Thank you that you continue to open us to you and your word and feed us on its truth. We need it. Uh, We are utterly dependent on you for your grace and mercy, for salvation, for our daily sustenance. And we thank you that you have met us here once again. Lord, teach us these truths that you taught Darius, that you are sovereign in control of all things, that you still shut the lion's mouths, that there is no kingdom that will stand forever but yours. Lord Jesus, that you have all power and authority, heaven and earth, that we are your people. Drive that deep into our hearts and might it create an eternal security and rest but also a holy passion and zeal to serve you with what time we have left. Lord, thank you for the privilege that is ours uh, to be yours. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we do have a few minutes. If anybody has any questions, comments, further applications, you tell me. Yeah. Says no. Yeah. And then later it talks about her being commended for her faith. Yeah. So I guess like trying to reconcile that of did she sin in line? Should she have said, should she have avoided it? Should she have said yes and trust that God protected it? I mean, all this is going to start coming up, I bet. Yeah. Say, God's going to shut lines mouths if he wants. What's my part in that? How do you sin for God's glory? Or did she sin or didn't she? Yeah. We had a conversation about this in a small men's group one day. We were studying through Exodus, and um, it was with the Hebrew midwives, because they lied, and they were commended as well. You can go back and read through that. Did they sin? Mm Mm-mm. They were innocent before God. But But we can't tell a lie. So, you know, that was one of the things that Bonhoeffer struggled with that Corey Ten Boom uh, 
and her sister Betsy struggled with is, but we're supposed to tell the truth. So if they come in here, we'll just tell them we're, we have Jews. No, don't do that. <laughs> do what the Hebrew midwives did. Do what Rahab did. They're commended for what they did. Uh, God can give us the wisdom when it's the time, but there are holy times of not giving the truth to these people. Do you think it's out of response of protecting lives? Because they were all protecting lives. That, sure. I, I don't know. That makes sense. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know exactly when it's okay and when it's not. You know, because then you think like, okay, someone comes to me and puts a knife to my throat and says, are you a Christian? That's not a time to lie. I don't want to deny Christ at that moment. You know? um, but that's an interesting thought. I mean, that is both times they're in the protecting of other people. Right. You know, they don't get to put on the same ethics that uh, maybe we go on when they're out to murder. Yeah. They don't have the right to that. Yeah. They forfeit their rights when they start murdering. You think the, uh, like, in calling out the greatest commandments, love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself above the others, has any effect on, you know, helping us determine when that makes sense and when it doesn't? Is this done in love for my neighbor? Um, yeah, I mean, that would be back to what Elaine's saying. I think that's a good point. Just, I'm here to love God and love neighbor. And part of that is opposing the wicked, which is what you are, sir. <laughs> but I'm not going to say that. I think uh, that kind of rolls in having it just been Veterans Day and uh, kind of the struggle I know that that I kind of went through and some, especially some of my buddies that that, that actually, you know, watch them that they eye to eye killed other people yeah um, and that's uh, engaged in wartime conflict just war and when is the is there a time for this and yeah yeah these are things that Christians have to think through and uh, it's very freeing to me to sit we tend to think about God's commandments as very wooden and um, but that there is the heart and uh, and soul of the commandment behind it you know and that you know you're not going to, you can't lie. But if they put you on the chopping block and are they're trying to kill all of our descendants, you'd better lie. <laughs> you know, it's, uh, that's comforting. May God give us the wisdom to know when, the, when is the time. And uh, that's good.